So this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And we're going to be looking at a story where Jesus sends out other disciples beyond the apostles to proclaim of his coming. Now, many suggest it is helpful to recognize a transition that takes place in Luke chapter 9. If you remember in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke records that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in the following 10 chapters, until we read of Jesus entering Jerusalem in in chapter 19, Luke will continuously point us to the fact that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. And it's helpful to recognize because what it does is it frames everything that happens in the context of understanding that Jesus was intent, that he was purposeful in heading towards Jerusalem. And if we remember in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, what will take place in Jerusalem is his death and his resurrection. So Luke, with this shift in his gospel, wants to place our attention on Jesus and the work that he will do at the cross as being of most importance. Now, as we travel with him along the way, We're going to find teachings on discipleship, and we're going to find further clarity about what Jesus is going to accomplish in his death and resurrection. And I think we're meant to be captivated, captivated by how resolute Jesus was, how determined he was to go and die. And when we see that determination, it influences our understanding of what is taking place in each story along the way. Our story this morning finds itself at the beginning, at the beginning of this extended journey. And as I believe we'll see, it shows us the reason we need to listen to everything Jesus said and did. The reason we need to understand it and believe in it. And we will see this as we observe the passage together, which I see showing us four things that Jesus sends these disciples out with. A clear commission, an understanding of the task, a necessity to trust God, and an awareness of their significance. So if you haven't already, open up to Luke chapter 10. And let's observe together first how Jesus sends them with a clear commission. Notice what Luke records in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, there are several things that stand out in this opening verse. First is the opening where Luke says, After this, or after these things, pointing our attention back to what he previously recorded in chapter 9. And I believe this points back to the cost of following Jesus and his call to all who are following him to put their hand to the plow and not look back. And so after this, Jesus then appoints 72 of those that continued to follow him to be sent out. Now, it's important to note that some translations, and you may be reading them this morning, may say 70, and some say 72. This is a discrepancy in the original manuscripts, and honestly, it's about evenly divided there. 
And so scholars are unsure of which number was the original number. Some suggest a change happened at some point in time due to a copyist error, where a scribe just added the, word, the number two. Others suggest that some scribes could have, could have wanted to prefer a significance of the number 70 because of how it correlates to other things in the Bible, like Moses appointing 70 elders. And so they may have changed it along the way to bring in a symbolic um, significance. I don't think that it really matters too much to dig into what that number was because regardless of whether it's 70 or 72, the point remains the same. Jesus sent out others beyond the apostles. And this was immediately after relaying the cost of following him and telling them to put their hand to the plow. Now notice what else is in this verse 1. These disciples were commissioned in groups of two, possibly to bring confirmation of their testimony based on the testimony of two witnesses. And then Luke also records that they went on ahead of Jesus into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So they're sent out understanding that what they are doing is going before Jesus to go into every town that he is about to enter into. Now, move down to verses 9 through 11, where we see a consistent message that they will bring. And that is, the kingdom of God has come near. And we're going to look at this a little bit more a little later, but we will see then that this message is given to those who receive the disciples and to those who reject the disciples. So this is the consistent message that they were supposed to say. The kingdom of God has come near. So the disciples are sent out to go before Jesus and to declare that the kingdom of God is near. And I think as we connect those two things and we see that they are going before Jesus, we see that primarily what that means is the king is coming. The king is coming and you're going to want to listen to him. So in verse 1, we see that these disciples are given a clear commission to go out into twos, into every town that Jesus was about to enter, and proclaim that the king is coming, that the kingdom of God is near. Now the next thing I think we can observe about this passage is that Jesus sends them with an understanding of the task. Just follow the flow of Luke's narrative. In verse 1, he shared that Jesus sent out 72 or 70 ahead of him. Then in verses 2 through 3, he records Jesus saying these words. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I've been so captivated by this commissioning of Jesus. Because before he sends them on their way, he says, do one thing, pray. Now notice he doesn't say, pray for your success as you go. He doesn't say, pray for God to be with you or to give you everything you need. He starts by saying, there's a harvest there that is plentiful. And you need to pray that God will send more laborers 
into that harvest. Essentially saying, you're not enough. You're not enough. Now, the area of California where Holly and I came from, if I'm not mistaken, is where around 40% of the country's fruits and nuts are produced. And as you drive around in the Central Valley of California, you just see hundreds of acres of various kinds of crops. Fruit trees lining up in a row, almond trees, grapevines rolling through the hills, just hundreds of acres. I looked it up, and in 2019, the almond harvest alone in California was estimated to be around 2.5 billion pounds. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong in converting this, but I think that's roughly about 1.2 billion kilograms. So imagine for a second that there's only 70 people to gather in that harvest. What if there's only 700? Do you feel the weight of that? There's not enough. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. It is ready, it is abundant, and what you should do first and foremost is pray that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers. Pray. Pray. Pray because the task is bringing in that harvest. But he says one more thing about the task in verse 3. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now you can picture this, right? A bunch of lambs in the midst of wolves would be a devastating sight. I guess unless you're the wolves. It's dangerous. I'm sending you out, and there are wolves in that harvest, but you are to bring in that harvest. So the task that these disciples were given is to go out into a plentiful harvest, but to go out with a recognition that more laborers are needed and an understanding that they would be in the midst of wolves. I think the question then is, how would they care for themselves in this kind of environment? You would grab everything you could. Maybe a club, maybe a knife, something. You know, you would, you would be prepared. And that's what I think, though, that Jesus tells them how to prepare when he sends them out next with a necessity to trust God. Look at verses 4 through 8. Right after saying, I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And as I was thinking on these verses, I couldn't help but notice the focus on trusting God to provide everything that they would need. No one in their right mind goes on a journey without money. And no one would leave behind their knapsack that would be what they would carry the money in or extra supplies that they would need. And it would be absolutely ridiculous to take a journey in the Middle East without sandals, 
What point is this, though, for Jesus? It's depending upon God. You need to go out knowing that you are dependent upon God. Think about it. If you were to head out on a trip and you left your wallet at home and your car runs out of gas or you need some water desperately, you are dependent on someone else to fill that need. But if you have your wallet with you, you simply stop in at the local Adnock, you grab some water and you fill up your tank. You're providing for yourself. But Jesus says, go out with a dependence on God. Now, what about the command to greet no one along the road? What an interesting command. You're supposed to go out and tell people about Jesus, but don't talk to anybody on your way. Now, this could be that because those customary greetings that would happen in that time took up a lot of time, so it's, the intent is just don't be slowed down by what you're supposed to do. Be committed to the task. But don't those greetings also seek to make friends or acquaintances that might be able to help you in your time of need? Jesus says, don't worry about that. Go and trust God. Then, don't let this pass you by. Consider the amount of dependence it would take to walk into a town and a random house in that town and say, peace be to this house, and then just wait. And peace either comes back to you or it rests upon them. Just think about that. Think about it from the disciples' perspective. We can assume that most of these disciples were probably Jews at this time. And they're sent out to go into these towns that are a lot of Gentile towns. And they're supposed to just see who's willing to welcome them in and provide for all of their needs while they're there. That would take some guts, would it not? But is it guts that Jesus wants them to have? Absolutely not. Because he doesn't just tell him to go. Look what he says next in verse 6. He says, And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. Do you hear the confidence? Pay attention to the fact that the son of peace is already there. And even the phrase son of would have been unmistakable because for the Jewish vernacular, the phrase son of signifies a strong association with whoever is their father, or with whatever is a characteristic about them. So these disciples are going out knowing that they are looking for someone who is enjoying the peace of God already on their lives. In other words, they've been primed to receive the message. The Lord has already been working. So you see, it's not a call to have guts. It's a call to trust God. God has gone before you. Go and know that the Lord will already have some in those towns ready to receive your message. Finally, in verses 7 through 8, he says, And remain in the same house, whatever house takes you in, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So Jesus is calling them to trust that whatever house of peace they come upon is the house that the Lord intends to provide for them through. And he's saying, don't keep looking around 
Don't look around for something better. Eat what is provided for you because that is what God is providing for you. And as I thought of all these things, I see him sending them with a necessity to trust God. They needed to lean on God's sovereignty and trust that he was with them. Now, the last thing that we observe is that Jesus sends them with an awareness of their significance. Start with me in verses 8 through 11. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So again, we see their primary message is the kingdom of God has come near. And this message is delivered either along with healing to the towns that received them or with a sign of judgment to the towns that rejected them. Now, I think one thing this helps us see is what the intention is of the healing that accompanied the proclamation. Because what is put before us is two responses to people contrasted together. One to those who accept the disciples and another to those who reject the disciples and their message. And when we notice that the proclamation of wiping off the dust from their feet is a sign of judgment against the town and the coming kingdom, we can also say that the healing that accompanied the town that received them is a sign of peace. It's a sign that God has made peace. So the disciples are being sent out to proclaim either peace to that city as the king comes or judgment to that city as the king comes. And verses 12 through 15 highlight the severity of that judgment. Oh, church, let me encourage you. Let the weight of verses 12 through 15 land on your hearts this morning. Listen to Jesus' words. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town, the town that rejected the disciples' message. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades." Jesus brings a sobering attention to the severity of judgment that comes to those who reject the gospel. For the cities that reject the disciples' message, he says it's more bearable on the day of judgment. That's what he means with on that day. It's more bearable for Sodom than for them. This is meant to be dramatic. Sodom was an extremely wicked and wretched city. And Sodom is a city that is put on display in the Old Testament as God's wrath is poured upon them. But Jesus says, the day of judgment will be more bearable for Sodom than for those that reject the disciples' message. 
Then Jesus speaks of three cities. Cities that he would have already visited. These would have been cities that saw his miracles, that heard his teachings, and they ultimately rejected him. Chorazin was about two miles or three and a quarter kilometers from Capernaum, which is basically the base of operations for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Bethsaida is close by as well, and presumably very close to where he fed the 5,000. And Jesus says, it's more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for them. In fact, Tyre and Sidon would have repented had they seen the works that you had seen. This is where it gets real, church. As I was studying, I discovered that Tyre and her sister city, Sidon, are directly associated with the devil himself in Ezekiel 28. Go back and read it. The king of Tyre is the, and the devil are almost one and the same as the Lord is pronouncing in judgment, showing that these were exceedingly wicked and horrible cities. But Jesus says their punishment is more bearable than those that reject the disciples' message. Because if they had seen and heard, would we have the opportunity to see and know and hear now? They would have repented. And what about Capernaum, that base of operations where Jesus started his ministry? Interestingly, there's no record of an outright rejection of Jesus in the scriptures there. They never chased him out. They never told him to leave. But they're apathetic to his message. And in that apathy, Jesus says, you will be brought down to Hades. Which in Luke 16, 23 through 24, he'll describe as the place of torment. This is all pointing to the devastating consequences of rejecting the disciples' message. And then notice how he sums this up in verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Do you see the significance of the disciples and their message that they were bringing? They were dispersing the message of the King, Jesus Christ. And if they were rejected then the people are ultimately rejecting Christ. And if the people are ultimately rejecting Christ, they are rejecting God himself. Think about the awareness that they now had of their significance of what they were going out to do. They were going before Jesus, seeking sons of peace to declare peace upon and proclaiming judgment for those that rejected their message. Because they represented the king who was coming. That's the story. Now the question is, what is the intended message for us in all of this? And I think we can find the meaning or the message as we sum up what we saw in the things Jesus sent them out with. So here's how I would sum all of this up. Jesus sends the disciples out to begin bringing in the harvest as representatives of the king, proclaiming peace to those who receive their message and judgment to those who reject them.
And the main point to me becomes clear. Listen to the disciples' message. Are you one of the ones who hears the disciples and therefore hears Christ? Do you believe that the king has come? And do you listen to the rest of their message that they were going to continue bringing? That the king, Jesus Christ, died on a Roman cross as a substitute payment for our sins. And then in doing that, he provided a way for us to be reconciled to God and to have peace with God. And then he rose from the dead, giving life to all who follow him. Are you listening to the disciples' message? I hope you are. Or dreadfully, are you not? Have you rejected their message? Maybe you're here and you've been wondering about this Jesus. Maybe you're at home watching and you've been wondering about this Jesus in the message of the gospel. Let me just encourage you to see the dreadful end of rejecting that message. It's a reality that we cannot avoid. The day of judgment is coming. And so my plea is turn. Turn to Christ and find forgiveness for your sins. Turn to Christ and find reconciliation with God. Turn to Christ and find that peace that is everlasting, that passes all understanding. That's the main message of this passage, I believe. But as we conclude, I want to move into thinking on some applications or implications of this passage for us that are following Christ, that have received that message. And I think we can find these as we look back at verse 2 and we see the first thing the disciples were told to do. To pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. More laborers are needed. And as I mentioned, along this journey to Jerusalem, we will see lots about what that means to be a laborer for Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And we begin here. We begin noticing that he sent out 72 or 70 others beyond the apostles. They're not named at all. We have no clue who they are. But they are commissioned to begin to bring in the harvest that the Lord has. And as I think, I think that as we look at them and the commissioning that Christ gives to them, we can draw out some applications for ourselves. So my question as I was studying this is what from this story can we apply to our lives as disciples of Christ? And before I share what I believe we can apply, I think a caution is necessary anytime we look at Jesus commissioning the apostles. And the caution is this, that we should acknowledge the uniqueness of their mission. I think it's helpful to start here because if we view everything that Jesus told the disciples here as given specifically to us, we run the risk of overemphasizing things in this passage that were never intended by Luke to be emphasized. So how do we know that this is a unique mission, though? Well, first, if you notice, Luke sent them ahead of Jesus to go to every place that Jesus was about to go. 
So their mission was specific to that time, to proclaim something as the king is coming. Secondly, in Luke 22, 35 through 36, Jesus will actually change part of this commission. Turn there with me, because I want us to see this together. In verse 35 of Luke 22, Jesus says this. He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Now really quick, just think on that. You had no money, you had no knapsack, you had no sandals, but did you lack anything? No, nothing. We will never lack anything. The Lord will always give us what we need. But notice what he says next in verse 36. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. So you can see what the disciples were given in that moment was a unique mission. And he's going to change that. And he's going to tell you to start taking money and a knapsack with you. And so it reveals that there was a unique nature of this mission that we need to acknowledge. And I think as we acknowledge this, it helps us to keep from saying we're supposed to go into every town and just pronounce judgment on them. Or we should go into a city to proclaim the gospel and expect that there's somebody there that's going to house us and provide for all of our food in the same ways. Or saying things like all believers have the ability to heal the sick when preaching the gospel. Irregardless of the fact that Paul mentions spiritual gift of healing in 1 Corinthians 12 as only given to some. So we should expect for some things to be things that we can draw out, but other things to be things that were specific to those disciples. So how then can we apply this passage? I want to give three ways, although I'm sure there are many others. First, we should sense the great need for more laborers in the harvest. Oh, we should sense the reality of verse 2. The harvest is plentiful. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the laborers are few. And as we sense this need, we should be moved to pray consistently. God, will you send more laborers into the harvest? And we should ask ourselves if we're meant to be the answer to that prayer. You see, in one way, I think the people that we should most identify with in this passage are the laborers being prayed for. We should see the harvest. We should see how the Lord provides for those who go out into the harvest, and we should long to take part of bringing that harvest in. Church, are you truly sensing the need for more laborers in the harvest? And are you praying for God to send more laborers? Are you willing to go? Are you taking part in reaping the harvest that is around you and proclaiming the kingdom of God and reconciling men and women to God? That's the first application I see. The second application is that we should trust in the provision of our Lord. Just think of how many ways Jesus called on these disciples to trust in God and how he showed them that God is trustworthy and how they came back and said, we lacked nothing. Nothing. 
Are you trusting in the Lord to go before you as you proclaim the gospel? Are you trusting in his power to soften hearts or prepare sons of peace for the message? Are you trusting in his ability to provide for everything you need as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Church, see from this passage the beautiful sovereign care of God. He knows who the lambs are. He knows who the wolves are. He prepares sons of peace to receive the message that we are taking. And he constantly, consistently, and always provides for his people. And finally, I think we should feel the weight of our message. We should feel the weight of what it is that we are dealing with when we proclaim the gospel. I don't think this is an application we often go to, but just consider how much of this passage is devoted to what happens to those who either receive the message or reject the message. That's really a central point. And we'll study this passage next week, but in the next passage, Luke records Jesus' response to the disciples when they come back with joy of what they were able to do. And it's interesting because what they rejoice in is that demons were subject to their name in the name of Jesus, subject to them in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says this to them in Luke 10, 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is what is about. Our message, the gospel message, is ultimately regarding eternal life and joy in the presence of God forever or eternal death and torment under the wrath of God forever. Do you feel the weight of what it is that we are called to proclaim? And if you do, let that spur you on to share the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ with everyone that you come in contact with. So church, as we look at this commissioning of the disciples, let it challenge our hearts this morning. Let it move us to be a people who listen to Jesus' disciples. And let it move us also to be a people who sense the great need for more laborers, who trust in the provision of God, and who feel the weight of the message that we are proclaiming to the world. Let me pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, we praise you, For the grace, oh, the grace that you have shown us, that you worked in our hearts to see the glory of Jesus. That you softened this wicked heart of mine. That you removed the veil from my eyes to see the glory of Jesus. God, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who listen to your disciples who consistently receive their message and rejoice in the truth of your word. And that you would cause us to be a people who see the harvest that's around us and long to take part of bringing that in, who trust in your goodness, in your grace, and in your mercy. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.